first year of uni when you it's the first time you live alone and yeah i was, well, tw- I was 21 so it was like well i could eat i can literally fray bentos pies and chips every evening you can yeah and then you shouldn't <laughs> like two months in you realize why people don't do that <laughs> I'm turning into a flaky fragmentos pie. <laughs> How can you become pork pie shaped? I am pastry. <laughs> like, I feel really lethargic. <laughs> but I can't quite sleep. <laughs> this is like a slow burning hell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, stop fiddling. It's Looks fine. lustfully towards a broccoli. <laughs> yeah, when when you have a terrible yearning for veg, you know you've gone too far. Yeah, it's like... Oh... <laughs> Show me that asparagus again. <laughs> yeah. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with this story. Ooh. Takes place in November of 1841. But it actually starts in 1840, as that was the year that a young man who was either in his late teens or early 20s, we can't be 100% sure, as no record of his birth exists. Was he he ever born? Well, yes, because he's the person we're going to talk about. Stay to find out. Uh, We also can't be sure of his name, because he gave his name as Madison Washington. Um, But again... I hate that name, just for the record. Madison Washington. Yeah. Well, that is the name he gave people, but we have no birth certificate. So again, we don't know if that was his given name or if that was a name that he just decided he wanted. I don't feel like he's a cobbler. He's not. No. But anyway, he decided that he wanted to emigrate from Virginia in America to the British Dominion of Canada. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to go up to the Great White North. It was a journey of approximately 800 miles. Now, there were two means of quickly covering such a large distance in 1840. The railway network along the East Coast regions was already pretty comprehensive and stagecoaches were regularly making their way along well-worn trails between the southern and northern states. So you've got options, is what I'm saying. So crawl at a trotting horse's pace. See more of the country. You can go the scenic way. Right. Or you can use... Deafening train noise. Yeah, because the trains in America were bigger. They use a wider gauge of track just because what gauge i don't know i just know it's wider um madison washington though he decided against either option and instead set out to walk the entire way he's forest gumping it yeah he also elected to only travel during the hours of darkness this resulted in the journey taking him upwards of a month to complete still 800 miles in a month is amazing that's um i worked that out is uh, the equivalent of doing an average of three miles an hour yeah, over, the eight hours of dark, over the eight hours of darkness. Right. So you're looking at just shy of a marathon every night. Why is he doing it at night? Has he got a reason for this? Do we find out? We do, because... Oh, can I guess? Yes. He's not a vampire. <laughs> or he might believe he is. <laughs> <laughs> has, he got some skin, has, he, has he got a skin condition? That he you, can't... Could, you could say it's a skin condition. Okay. Mm. Is it a skin condition? It's a condition his skin is in, specifically um, the amount of melanin that oh, is in right, his skin. Oh, okay. So he's, um, is, he esca- is he escaped to plantation? Ding, ding, ding. There we go. He was less worried about the amount of time it would take and more worried about being captured before he got there. Oh, good man. Because Madison Washington was indeed an escaped slave who was fleeing from a Virginian tobacco plantation. Yeah, I thought albino. Is it albino? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I thought the sunlight would hurt him. Oh, no, no, no. No. It, 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 sunlight would not have hurt him. The people no. who could see him in the sunlight, <laughs> it was those people who were going to try and hurt him. Uh, Virginia was the first state to use slave labour and the first to legally define a person as a slave. And if you want to hear more about how they came up with that idea, see episode 42 on John Punch. Because we did cover that very first slave. Virginia would also side with the Confederacy in the Civil War in 1861, based mainly on a fear that the economy of the state was so dependent on slavery that it would be bankrupted immediately if it was no longer allowed. Right. So the southern states 
will tell you that it's they fought the Civil War because it was all about independence and states' rights. It was about slavery. They can dress it up however they want. It was, we want to continue owning other people. And actually, weirdly, um, in Virginia, as soon as they seceded from the Union, part of Virginia seceded from the secession because West Virginia broke away to form a brand new pro-Unionist state. Is that its own state, West Virginia? Yep. It became a, a, a state during the early knockings of the Civil War because Virginia as a whole went, no, we're on the Confederacy side. We want we want to own slaves. And West Virginia went, no, man. Not quite <laughs> such a... Well, to be fair to them, though, they said, we don't want any new slaves. We just want to be able to keep the slaves we already have. Yeah. So they wanted to be somewhere in the middle of the two sides in the Civil War. They were like... Is there any way we can just sit on the fence over here in West Virginia? That's a lovely bit of cake. (laughs) (laughs) I want it. (laughs) I don't want it to be gone. So is there any way that can happen for me? Now, we don't know anything about Madison's life prior to 1840, except that he was already married to a fellow slave by the time he made his escape. It is likely that he was born on the plantation and into a life of slavery. And it may have been the thought of having children who will be doomed to continue the cycle uh, of backbreaking and monotonous labour of picking tobacco because it's not the most diverting of jobs. There's no. not a lot of thought that needs to go into it. Just a lot of soul-destroying, repetitive actions. But it may have been the, the fear that he would just be bringing more life into the world who will be doomed to the same yeah, monotonous task yeah. that convinced him he had to try and secure his own freedom. While the greatest danger to an escaped slave was immediately after leaving their owner's property, reaching the northern states still wasn't a guarantee that you would remain free. Putting aside the fact that even in 1840, there were still over 300,000 people registered as slaves living in the northern states, despite slavery having apparently been officially ended in the north since 1804, so there well, were, they had the same rule, like existing slaves still. Th- they had enough loopholes that 300,000 people were, you know, technically slaves. Right. But not really. You know, there were, there were different ways that people got around it, like um, the old indentured servant thing. Right. Well, he's, he's not technically a slave. He just has to work for me for the next 65 years. And then he'll be free to go and do whatever he wants. He'll then be free to pursue his own business. At the age of 80. An escaped slave could still be pursued into the northern states by slave catchers who would seek to return them to the plantations where they would be punished severely before being put back to work. Lashings? Oh, yes. Yeah. Plenty of lashings, plenty of beatings. And then, of course, you don't want to be paying to feed somebody that's not working, so you put them back to work. Meanwhile, Canada as a British Dominion, would refuse to allow anyone within its borders to be returned to slavery under any circumstances. So although, like, you know, um, New York State, you know, New Jersey, you were kind of safe in that there were plenty of free... So you say slave catchers would go up to the northern states and bring people back? Yeah. So they didn't have any borders, it was just like... So while you were in the southern states, especially when you were in the state where the plantation was, the plantation owners were very powerful men, they'd have a lot of sway, so the police would question anyone that they saw that they thought might be an escaped slave. They were sort of in the pocket of the plantation owners. So you were at your most risk then. Once you hit the northern states, you weren't generally going to be just pursued by corrupt policemen, but there were people who would be paid by the slave owners to go into the northern states and try and bring these people back. Because obviously, as far as the slave owners were concerned, if somebody successfully escaped and the rest of the you know the workforce on the plantation heard about it, it would incentivize them to try the same thing. Right. It's like, so you had to show that there was nowhere that anyone could go where you could not reach them, and that would keep people in line. It was the fear of, well, I, I literally, you know, even if I try to go to where we're told we'll be free, it still doesn't work for us. Yeah. It had to be that complete crushing of all hope, which is how you run a business in America, even to this day. God, 800 miles. I know. At night... Mm. with every sound that you hear of another human being being a potential, you know, you're just terrified every time you hear humanity. Yeah. Just the sounds of normal people going about their lives is just terrifying to you. It's the length of Britain. Oh, yeah, yeah. You walk from Land's End to John O'Groats 
at night while avoiding all human contact over the course of a month. And that's that's what Madison Washington managed to do. Because after a month of struggling through the dark and trying to sleep through the day in whatever bolt hole he could find, while subsisting only on what he could steal from the fields he passed through, an exhausted Madison Washington... I mean, I'm assuming it was mainly vegetables. I don't think he was, like, picking up a raw lamb and just yeah. chowing down on that, and you definitely couldn't risk lighting a fire. So whatever you were eating, it was raw. I guess unless you felt very bold and you went and stole pies from the local farmer. From the windowsill yeah. as you're cooling. If you went full Looney Tunes on it. Yeah. yeah. But he managed to cross the border and he set about trying to build a new life for himself. There was evidence that it could be done successfully as well, as a fellow escaped slave and contemporary of Madison Washington called Joseph Taper had managed to set up a farm and get his child into the local school within the first year of freedom in Canada, reporting back to friends in America that, and I quote, My wife and I are sitting by a good comfortable fire, happy, knowing that there are none to molest us or make us afraid. It's nice. Isn't it? Yeah. Go Canada. And it is all well and good if you happen to have your family with you. Madison, however, quickly started feeling regret that he had escaped without his wife and started thinking that maybe you should go back and get her. Fuck. Because, I mean, she's not going to get a good... She's not going to get good treatment having her husband run. Mm. Is she? Well, well, she's tied to him legally. and Yes, yeah, semi-legally, I guess. Because, you know... The slave owners could still choose to separate them. You could sell someone's wife or husband to another plantation and they'd have to go. And you could only get married with the consent of the It's not going to reflect well on her. Oh, they'd definitely be asking her if she knew how he'd done it. Were he gone? You know, if anything else was planned. Yeah, I I think she probably found those first couple of days after he'd scarfed rough. Yeah, yeah. Did she know he was going to go? Well, we don't know. Um, There's some reports that say her name was Susan. But Susan. again, we don't actually have her name. That's my improv name. Susan. That's the one I always reach for. It's Susan. It's Susan. When you have to be a woman. Just... No, no, if there's a woman in whatever I'm saying. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Damn it, Susan. <laughs> <laughs> Poor old Susan. Susan. So he's thinking, I might need to go back and get Susan. Oh, Susan. You know, I've, I've shown I can do it. So yeah. all I need to do is walk back 800 miles. And then back again. And then back again 800 miles. With so, Susan. Yeah. I have only... they got kids? Uh, no. No kids. At this point, as far as we know. <laughs> okay, that'll make it a bit easier. Yeah, so he's, he's thinking, I've walked 800 miles. I may as well just up that slightly to 2,400 miles yeah. in the end. By this time, Madison Washington had recovered his strength, and he was staying with an abolitionist called Hiram Wilson, right. who is best remembered now for setting up a number of schools to ensure freed slaves could access the education they had been denied in the States. Because obviously, you know, if you educate someone you're giving them, A, skills to escape, and B, the ability to start reading things like, I don't know, the Bible, even. Things that say that all men are created equal and, you know, that it's a divine right to live a free life. All those kinds of things that you don't really want your workforce of, you know, unpaid. What what kind of religion would slaves have? Uh, They were forcefully converted to Christianity, but a lot of... But not allowed to read, well, they're illiterate, a lot of them, and... Well, a lot of the sort of voodoo stuff um, and a lot of um, the stuff that you see in New Orleans, that kind of mix of traditional um, belief systems with Christianity came out of the, you know, the slaves being just taken from Africa. I mean, of course, at this time, uh, there was a ban on importing slaves to America, but it was decided by the American states that any slaves that were already there, you could keep. Yeah, and procreation sort of made up for the numbers, so... God. Well, yeah. It is believed that Madison Washington learned to read and write during this time, though, with Hiram. Because it's going to be useful to be able to read street signs, you know, maps, all those kinds of things if you're going to go on a daring raid to pick up your missus. He also learned of the existence of the Underground Railroad. Mm. Now, sadly, this was not an actual Underground Railroad, which would have been wicked cool if they dug an Underground Railroad from Virginia all the way to Canada. Yeah. Choo-choo! Instead, it was a series of safe houses that had been set up in the States to shelter escaped slaves as they made their way north. Uh, However, I'm pleased 
to report that the person credited with organising the formation of the railroad had the very macabre name of Levi Coffin. Mm. Which at least, it, it made up for it in my eyes a little bit. Also, they kind of lent into it. Once the name, the Underground Railroad, had been sort of birthed, they started referring to these safe... It's more underground than it actually not being a railroad. (laughs) It's a metaphorical railroad. But they lent into it. So the safe houses started to be called stations. Mm. And the people who were risking their lives sort of, you know, hiding the slaves within the houses. carriages. They were station masters. There was something for the people who helped to liberate the slaves because at one end you would have people who would actively go into plantations to help slaves escape, and they had a name as well. It was Thomas. Something like, I don't know if it was ticket officers yeah. or something like that, but also face Tubman was one of those. Um, she would go and take people out, but there were they were generally um, freed slaves themselves who would go and take risks going back into plantations to bring out families and sort of they transport them that first step to the first station. And then we'll go back. And Fat controllers. <laughs> I, think, I think that's right. Yeah. Fat controllers. Yeah. Sir Topham Hats. <laughs> James. <laughs> He's one of them, isn't he? He is, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, who's it? Reverend Aubrey. That would have been a good one. Who was the guy who wrote it, wasn't it? I don't know. The Reverend Aubrey. He wrote oh. the Thomas the Tank Engine. Ringo. <laughs> Ringo. But yeah, I, I reckon it was probably frustrating having spent a month walking 800 miles on your own to learn that there was actually this very well sort of organised system specifically for aiding people. Oh, you know, you'd be relieved. If you'd just found that out and you weren't planning to go back, you'd be a bit annoyed. Like, why didn't no one tell me about this? But he's got to do it twice. I suppose. So so you'd be like, okay, I've got a bit of hope here. Maybe Maybe finding out about that, the Underground Railroad. What was what told him he might be able to actually pull yeah, this off? Yeah, he's like, okay, I can actually, actually give this a go. Well, yeah, he, he did... To get Susan. He did start using the Underground Railway in reverse, uh, using the system of safe houses to travel back south in secret with a plan to rescue his wife before returning to Canada for good. Which, I, I understand his motives, but it probably confused the hell out of the newly freed slaves going the other way. <laughs> they're all just everyone's heading north except this one dude who's just like anyway i'll see you later (laughs) just heading back south what's he doing is is he okay do you think you'd you'd have the cojones to go back um would you just get a new wife and call her susan well it's funny that you say that because (laughs) a few of the people in canada that was the advice they gave to madison washington they're like you you know other women exist right no. Maybe one of those. <laughs> yeah. It's more convenient. But he, no, he took his marriage vows seriously, and he's like, "I'm going. I'm going to get Susan." Yeah. Otherwise, I'd be, I'd be a bigamist. I don't want to be a bigamist. Well, I suppose that the quality that that meant that he he left, he took that risk of leaving in the first place, mm. is the same quality needed to, to go back. Yeah. If you've got <laughs> the bravery to run away, yeah. And you've proven to yourself that, look, you did it. Yeah. You probably got that confidence, especially, you know, like I said before, he was at best in his early 20s at this point, so he probably does feel invincible. He's got a very cool voice, hasn't he? Probably. Clint, and I will not Clint be Eastwood to... kind of... <laughs> I just... I've got to go and get my Susan. Very quiet, but yeah. very sort of deliberate. Commanding. <laughs> Madison passed through Rochester in New York and a place called Utica yeah. in quick succession with the owners of safe houses, more often than not Quakers, because of course it's Quakers. It's something good Quakers and hopeful do. that happened yeah. in the world. It was the Quakers. Can we just change the podcast name to Quakers? <laughs> Quakers doing lovely things. <laughs> uh, they were constantly trying to convince Madison not to go any further. Probably saying, you know, if you tell us which plantation you were on, we can probably sort this out without you having to go and do it yourself. You know, we can at least try and locate Susan for you we do have a you know a network of people this is their job mm. um, ever, did, so you had slave catchers have you got is there a name given to the people that are trying to free slaves yes there is um are we coming to it uh they were yes yeah we exactly now really how do you always do this <laughs> yes they were called slave snatchers oh <laughs> yeah which sounds wrong because it, it's a bit like the child snatcher you know yeah. but yes you had slave catchers and slave snatchers gun to your head catcher or snatcher snatcher you've got to be a snatcher <laughs> uh yeah whatever his plan was though 
to get Susan out, it didn't work, as Madison Washington was recaptured somewhere near the border of Pennsylvania and Virginia towards the end of the summer of 1841. Even worse. On set, Jim. Hmm? I meant the name, <laughs> just to clear that up. I didn't, I didn't mean which job would you rather have. Um, well, again, Slave Snatcher, because it's alliterative. Yeah, yeah. If you're going down the advertising sort of route of which, which sounds best. Yeah, slave what, snatcher. that was it, what sounds like a better name. Slave Snatcher. Yeah. yeah. Slave Catch is a bit too Glad to clear that up. <laughs> it's utilitarian, isn't it? Slave Catcher, what do you do? I catch slaves. Slave Snatcher. Woo, I'm Trixie. It's, sort of, uh, it's fine you saying it, but... It, I'll sort of stumble over it, saying it, because it's too similar. Slave citizen snatch. I am a slave citizen. <laughs> slave citizen. <laughs> Even worse, though, for Madison... Ooh. Now I'm tripping over stuff. Yeah. Even worse, though, for Madison Washington, the owner of the Virginian tobacco plantation he had belonged to decided that he was too disruptive to return, as he might instigate larger escape plots. Instead, the decision was taken to sell Madison to a slave trader called Thomas McCargo to be transported to That's the a lazy name to be transported to the deep south states. Oh shit. This process of sending disruptive slaves to the harsher conditions of the sugar and cotton plantations in the deep south is the origin of the phrase being sold down the river. All right. Mm. You know, so so he's been captured, sorry. He was recaptured on the border of Pennsylvania and they sort of went to the the person who he'd escaped from, the tobacco plantation owner, and said, we've got this guy. Oh, fuck. Do you want him back? And he went, no. It, he might give my other slaves ideas. I'll sell him to a slave trader, and that slave trader can take him down south and sell him there. So he's basically, he's, he's bypassing Susan entirely. Fuck. Susan's coming for him. <laughs> it's getting switched, isn't it? I'm going to flip reverse this. Well, let's see, shall we? Thomas McCargo took Madison and another 38 slaves he bought to the coast at Hampton Roads in Chesapeake Bay, where he placed them on a cargo ship called the Creole. Hmm. Now, he didn't travel with them. Instead, he left them under the care of his agent, John R. Hewell, to eventually be sold in New Orleans. He insured each slave for $800 in case they didn't make it to their destination and probably thought no more about it, confident that he would be receiving a reasonable profit in a few months' time. So he, you know, he was seeing these people as... He was McCargo. He dealt in cargo. He yeah. didn't see these as people. So he was just like, right, insure them against... Because I think it was something along the lines of 10%, even on the sort of um, internal slave shipping routes, died. So he was insuring against that, and then it was like, right, I've got 39 people on there i'm gonna sell them for about one thousand two hundred dollars each i'm gonna turn a tidy profit regardless of what happens i don't need to worry about them anymore i'll go back to finding others Inter international transport of slaves to america like i said had ended in 1808 however the domestic slaving route remained a massive business as there was an oversupply of slaves in the north where there were the more established tobacco plantations and a lack of slaves in the south where the newer sort of um cash crops of cotton uh, and sugar were starting to be grown. Right. It involved plantation owners from the northern states sending ships around the tip of Florida in order to access the port cities of the southern slave states. So you'd sail down the east coast, round the wang of America, yeah. and then back up into, I guess we call it the taint of America? Yeah. The perineum of America, yeah. where they drop off um, at places like New Orleans. At midnight on October 25th, the Creole left the dock in Virginia, laden with tobacco and over 135 slaves. Despite the crew being only nine men strong, and only having one gun between them, none of the slaves were chained whilst on board, with the only stipulation being that they would be locked in separate male and female quarters each night, to ensure no funny business. The captain, Robert Ensner, was so sure that he would have a quiet voyage that he had even decided to bring along his wife, his four-year-old daughter and his 15-year-old niece, along with a few other paying passengers. They've got one gun. Yeah. And nobody's chained. Nobody's chained. Okay. It's, it's the sense of superiority that yeah, these people no, have. I, yeah. yeah, I feel it. Madison Washington found himself named head cook for the slaves and was in charge of handing out the daily rations. 
This allowed him to spend more time on deck than the other slaves and gave him an opportunity to talk to everyone on board and to begin working out the routines and habits of the crew. Firstly, he worked out that they were not particularly interested in guarding the slave quarters at night because on the first day, six of the women had been selected to complete maid duties in the main cabin. They were not returned to the slave quarters at night and it is assumed that they were being forced to engage in sex with the crew members. Right. The crew were so distracted, in fact, that they didn't even consistently lock the slave quarters at night, which could provide opportunities should enough of the slaves decide that they didn't actually want to finish the journey to New Orleans as planned. Do they know the hell they're going towards? Yes. So they've heard stories. When I say, you know, it's the origin of the phrase being sold down the river. So that's a threat. Yeah. Of though, yeah. It was... You think this is bad. Yeah. You know, it's not swelteringly hot in Virginia. It's, you know, it's comparable to what we have in Britain. Fierce mild. Yeah, it's, it's very mild compared to the deep south and the... Just the humidity and the heat that they get down there, it's... I mean, Emma went um, on a trip to America and she said it's just... Even just the act of standing outside... It's too much. It, it just saps your energy. It is hell on earth. And you, you're working just as hard as you are on the tobacco. You know, with sugar and cotton, it's still the same job, essentially, just in much harsher conditions. You're more motivated in the cold to work. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's a benefit. Whereas yeah. when you're in sweltering heat you really don't want to be pushing yourself as hard as all that do you chop wood warm me twice <laughs> thank you yeah old farmer jack yeah. i live by that do you yeah i'm doing my taxes <laughs> any 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 problem that comes up i just say that to myself and i feel better <laughs> yeah even if it doesn't quite fit <laughs> so after nearly two weeks of secret plannings Washington had recruited a core group of 18 men willing to attempt to mutiny. Sorry, did you say secret plannings? Yes, and schemings. <laughs> Sorry. A core group of 18 men willing to attempt to mutiny, which, if you're paying attention, is double the number of crew on board. So they've got a two-to-one advantage already. The night of the 7th of November was chosen, possibly because the Creole was reaching the very tip of Florida at this time, or possibly because the slaves had somehow managed to take possession of the only gun on board the ship during the day. Oh, and got, it hadn't been noticed. They've got Gunny. They've got Gunny. <laughs> Gunny keeps reappearing in our stories. <laughs> I love you, Gunny. Well, luckily at this point, Gunny's on the side of right. Yeah. She's good. At 9pm, a slave called Elijah Morris came on deck and shouted to the first mate, Gifford, who was on watch at the time, that some male slaves had gone into the female hold. Gifford called for help from one of the passengers called William Henry Merritt, who was paying for his passage by acting as a guard, apparently very badly. Right. (laughs) Because he hadn't locked the two, there were two locks he had to make sure were locked. Neither of them had been locked. And also, he should probably have known where the gun was. Gifford asked Merritt to help him. gun's really rare. I don't understand where they've got one gun. I think it just goes to show the the level of arrogance. Is that all it is? Yeah. Well, this, because... The crew, this is their job. They just ferry, you know, as far as they see it, they just ferry cargo. They've depersonalised it to the point where they, they don't see a threat because they don't see these people as human. Right, so it's cattle, basically. Yeah, it's, it's, they've got lax because they've yeah. probably done this journey. Uh, I mean, I think it took, in total, like, at the round trip was a month and a half. So they're doing this journey several times a year. Nothing ever happens. Nothing ever happens. Gunny just sits there yeah. gathering dust. Yeah, you know, your you oil gunny... Yeah. Every couple of days, just to make sure, you, you, if you needed him. But you're starting to come to the realisation, you never will. No. He's just, you know, it's decoration, yeah. if anything. So, yeah. Is it, Gunny's just a sign. Hmm. It's like having a sign on the side of the boat saying, don't leave. We don't want to do this, but... Yeah, don't leave. Okay. Yeah. So, Gifford and Merritt, they went to the female hold, and they asked some of the ladies inside, are there any men in there with you? One goes, no. <laughs> well, the ladies, actually, they were in on it and they said, yes, yes, there are some men down here with us. You'll have to come and have a look. So Gifford and Morris descended into the hold where they were confronted by Washington, who told them that he was going to go up onto deck now and that they should not try and stop him. When they tried to stop him, Gifford was surprised to find Elijah Morris had Gunny. <laughs> and Gunny was pointed at Gifford. Figuring that the slave would not actually fire for fear of drawing attention to what was going on, he continued to try and grab Washington. Morris did fire, and the shot grazed Gifford's head. 
He took this as an opportunity to pretend to be dead and hoped that he would be able to find a safe place to hide. Knowing it was now or never, as, you know, they had kind of alerted the other people on board that something was going on, Washington urged the mutineers to attack the main cabin, shouting, Come up, every damned one of you. If you don't and lend a hand, I will kill you all and throw you overboard. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure during the week... He was using the carrot of, you know, we'll, we'll all be able to be free. Yeah. But as it came to it, he realised... isn't it? Yeah, it's... it's the crunch and I need to get out the big stick. Yeah, yeah. It's like, we do this or you're dead. Because if we don't do this now, I'm dead. Yeah. Power of gunny. Wait, sh- well, so th- this gun... Yeah. So it's not one that you shoot and then you've got to get your little powder bag out and... No, it's... We're into revolvers and... We're into a revolver, so it's likely to be... It's a rifle, be... isn't it? So it's like a... No, it's... It's a handgun. It was a handgun. So, oh, so he's got a six. He's got a six shooter. Essentially, he's got a six shooter. Yeah. yeah. Um. So you've, you, it's not you know semi-automatic. So you still got to draw back the hammer each time. But he's got another good five shots. Yeah. The shot that he'd already fired did indeed wake the rest of the crew, and Captain Enza jumped up, ready to defend his ship, as all good captains will. He went to grab his gun, but obviously found it wasn't there. Yeah. <laughs> This is the white outline. You know, <laughs> how, you know yeah. I was thinking more how, you know, uh, like uh, someone's workshop, you have tools. Oh, yeah. That, but you've drawn around them. Where's Gunny? <laughs> the one time I need you. You're supposed to live here. <laughs> so, thinking on his feet, he instead grabbed the emergency musket and went outside. Oh, God. And a musket is one where you have to... Break the glass to get it. You have to load it with the powder and you have to put the shot in. You have to tamp it down. I just hope to God it's not damp. Yeah. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> he ran out onto the deck and seeing the slaves racing across at him, he fired. Only to find that the musket was loaded with gunpowder, but not with a musket ball. Right. So it, it didn't... It just made a nice bang just sound. A, just <laughs> a gun ball. <laughs> it was basically a, a glorified firework at this point. Cursing, he pulled out a knife and was joined by Huell, the man responsible for guarding Washington, who was armed with a hand spike, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a big spike that you hold in your hand. Right. It's no more sophisticated than that. It's sort of like it was used... Is that a weapon? Well, it was used for... Um, like an ice pick or something ...opening like crates. So rather than getting a full crowbar, you just jam that in and sort of yank the lids off things. Right. So it was, it was just a tool that would be lying around on a cargo ship. But could do a bit of damage. If you needed it to. Yeah. The resulting fight was entirely one-sided. Captain Enzo was badly injured, lost his knife, and only barely managed <laughs> to climb to the main top platform in the rigging where he was able to hide. So the main top is a platform that's below the crow's nest. Yeah. So like halfway up, you've got the main top, which is just like this wooden board that you can lay down on and hope nobody climbs up to yeah. see you. Um, so he went up there to hide, bleeding quite heavily. Huell, he was not quite so lucky. He was stabbed at least 20 times before he managed to crawl into one of the cabin rooms. He was followed by some of the slaves. However, they decided to watch him slowly bleed to death rather than finish him off. Because yeah. it turns out, you know, he'd been the person um, who'd been contracted by McCargo to get the slave safely. And it, it turns out he was a sadist. You know, he'd taken that job specifically because he liked being able to hit people with no um, comeuppance. And he liked to be able to rape people with no comeuppance. He was just a wrong person. And it seems like there was just this decision, unspoken agreement between all the people who went in to follow him to make sure he didn't get up to anything. That We're not going to put him out of his misery. He's he's going to die slowly. Yeah, he's, he's a sit and enjoy this. Yeah, we're going to savour this because if the roles were were reversed, you know... There was no way that he would do anything to show mercy. Thinking the captain and the first mate, who'd been grazed by the bullet, were dead, the mutineers searched for the second mate, promising all the other passengers and crew that they would not be harmed. What the mutineers didn't know was that the second mate had joined the captain and Gifford on the main top platform. Where his children? He's got a four-year-old and his wife. Yeah, well, like they say, they weren't going to harm any of the crew or the passengers. Right. They're not. The reason that they went after the well, the reason that they went after Huell was because he was an absolute bastard. Yeah, uh, and a, a few of them, it was like a personal vendetta because he'd taken great pleasure in beating them all the way from where they'd been bought in Virginia to the docks. Um, and it was almost out of necessity. We need to take out the captain, first mate, second mate, because then there's no command structure we can take over. Yeah, yeah. 
and, and, he, and he's just run out with a musket. Yeah, well, they thought they killed the captain, they thought they killed the first mate, so now they're just looking for the second mate. What they didn't know was that he'd already <laughs> seen what was happening, and he climbed up to the main top, uh, having only endured a light bit of stabbing yeah. on the en route. So he'd done quite well. Instead of the second mate, they found Come Merritt. down. No. <laughs> <laughs> Did he just wait on the top? Well, at this point, no one knows they're up there. So oh, they're right. just sat there going, all bleeding heavily, yeah, just... going, what do we do? I think at this point, we just need to see how it plays out. Maybe they'll leave Gunny somewhere. You're bleeding through the cracks. Stop it. Stop dripping. <laughs> so slick up here. <laughs> and you know, just just pooling and then... No, there was... A, there were... Drip, drip onto deck. No, there'd be a bucket up there and they're all just trying to bleed into yeah. the bucket. <laughs> it's my turn. Just trying to sort of scoop the blood from the wounds yeah. into the bucket. <laughs> it was not a good time for the, for the you know, the command structure of this ship. I think that's what yeah. we can say. This was a bad night for these guys. But what the mutineers did find was they found Merritt, the guy who'd been uh, paying for his passage by being a guard. And he was brought to Madison, Washington. Now that the ship had been subdued, Washington tried to calm matters, tried to calm everything down. It's like, yes, you know, there's been... A, we've, someone's been killed. It was a battle. Guys, we got a bit stabby. Mm, but Understandable. Yeah. But we can't continue like this. Yeah. We've, we've got what we need. We are in control of the ship. Yeah. Stabbing people now is, you know, there's no purpose to it. It's superfluous to yeah. our mission. You know how he's doing that speech? There's one guy... <laughs> Oh. Just stabbing. <laughs> no, Steve, I've told you no more. He's dead, Steve. That has to be the last one. <laughs> Stop it, Steve. Somebody take take it off him. Yeah, Huel. Oh. <laughs> big pink cushion. <laughs> Colander Huel, <laughs> as he will always be remembered. <laughs> what Washington did is he tried to explain that if Merritt would navigate them to where they wanted to go. No one else would be harmed. And Merritt... Without choices. Yeah, we, <laughs> and not really knowing where he is. Just went, okay, yeah. where do you want to go? <laughs> like a taxi driver. Yeah. Where can I drop you off, son? <laughs> At this point, Madison Washington, he turned to him, he said, I want you to take me to Liberia. What? Which is in Africa. What, why does he want to go there? What, what happened to Susan? I think he He's just forgot about Susan. He just wants to get as far away from <laughs> anything, everything as possible yeah. at this point, and regroup. But asking to go to Liberia put Merritt in a bit of an unfortunate position because he had to tell the mutineers that he couldn't do what they asked. He explained, probably you know, sort of stutteringly and pooing himself as after, he explained. After he already it. said yes because he thought yeah. he said library. <laughs> He's going no. He explained Liberia. What? that Liberia was nearly 5,000 miles away and that the ship that they were on was not designed to cross the entire Atlantic Ocean. Also, they only had supplies for a week or two at most and this crossing would take months. Right. So it's like, I, I would love to be able to comply with your request, but we, it, it's impossible. It cannot be done. This boat's designed to go maybe 2,000 miles. We'd run out of food in the midpoint of the Atlantic Ocean. I love that he has the knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> Just this random guy. He knows exactly where Liberia is, where it is relative to their current position. Well, I think... How it, long it'll take. Even and how if it... all he knew was, you want me to sell you to Africa? Africa. Yeah. We're currently just off the tip of Florida, and you want me to sell to Africa. So he said, look, you can do what you want to me, but it's a no-go. Yeah. And no one's going to be able to do it for you. Yeah. Washington, he conferred with the other mutineers to try and come up with a new plan because that was that was Washington's plan it was we'll take over the boat we'll sail to Liberia we'll be free so they've taken over the boat and step two suddenly yeah. wasn't going to materialise but luckily one of the other guys involved in the mutiny told Washington that the previous year a slave ship called the Hermosa had wrecked in the Bahamas and when it had limped into the port of Nassau for repairs the British authorities have freed the 38 slaves who've been on board as slavery was not recognised in any British territory. Right. So as soon as those slaves were brought onto British soil in order that the repairs could be done to the ship, the British authorities went, uh, why are these people in chains? And the Americans went, oh, they're, they're, they're our property. And the British just went, no, <laughs> undid all the sh- Off you go. Yeah. 
would you would you like to stay here can we can we maybe get you a taxi is there anywhere you need to be <laughs> and they just all got freed washington looked at merritt who presumably nodded as nassau and new orleans were practically equidistant from the point that they were at so they definitely had the supplies nassau where's that uh it's in the bahamas it's the capital i believe the bahamas right with news that they were sailing to freedom the bloodlust of the slaves dissipated to the point that when the captain and his mates were discovered at around 4.30am the following morning, they were not harmed. They were playing dominoes. Well, I say they were not harmed. They, they had been very harmed, but they were not harmed anymore. Yeah. The captain was even allowed to be joined by his wife, who attended to his wounds. That's very nice. And if he's stabbed 20 times... No. No. That was Huel. <laughs> that was, that was that the Colander. Colander Huel. <laughs> uh, Colander Huel was... Yeah. They didn't... That they didn't, rolls really well, doesn't it? They just rolled his body off the ship. <laughs> it was like... It's like... Well... Just, just with this dick. With, with, the, with the captain and the, you know, the first mate and the second mate, they were like, look, you know, no hard feelings. We, we're doing what we have to do. You do the same in our position. We're not monsters. Well, yeah. slowly kicking the perforated body of you all over. Also, we don't know what happened. We think he jumped. Yeah. Took and roll. <laughs> Throughout all of this, it's my favourite fact, the man steering the Creole, a Frenchman called Jacques Lacombe, had not left his post. He couldn't speak much English and probably accepted the change of course with a laconic mutter. Just... Yeah. <laughs> They've taken over the ship. We're going to the Bahamas. <laughs> I turn left. <laughs> he hasn't noticed. He was asleep. Well, the thing about that, it is... <laughs> during the, the mutiny. Normally, you'd think the guy in the wheelhouse would be, like, a key person to get. Yeah. But neither side, neither the attackers or the defenders in the mutiny, paid him any attention. Yeah, so there was, like, a battle going on, and he was just happily just steering the ship. You know that kid at school that's not in any... He, he just, he's in all social circles. Yeah. What doesn't <laughs> Nothing's engage. expected of him. Yeah. He just sits in the corner smoking. Oh, Jacques, he's cool. Yeah, and Jacques was there. <laughs> he's always there. <laughs> so, the Creole reached Nassau at daybreak on November 9th. When the British quarantine officer met the ship in the harbour, the first mate Gifford jumped into his boat and informed him that there had been a mutiny and that the ship should not be allowed to dock because he knew that if the slaves set foot on British soil, they would be free. Oh, Right, so the cargo, he's still going to get his insurance on all of them. Well, um, that's against death. Oh. So it's against losses. Uh, it's a bit more because the insurance company aren't going to pay because they, they would say, well, those people are still alive. They are still an asset. It's just that you've misplaced it. We're not paying out on you misplacing an asset. Right. In the same way, if you went to an insurance company and went, yeah, I, those boxes of tobacco can't remember which warehouse i put them in can you give me the money for them they go no no keep looking yeah you you need to look harder (laughs) for your things so gifford he said you can't let them dock you know they're gonna have to stay in the harbor um and you've got to take me to the american consul straight away so the british dutifully they took him to the american embassy the american consul in nassau was the brilliantly named very american named as far as i'm concerned americano John F. Bacon. <laughs> yeah. And he heard about the situation and knew what he had to do. He wrote to the governor of the Bahamas, Sir Francis Cockburn, who listened to his concerns and agreed to provide a military detachment to the Creole in order to keep order until the matter could be resolved. Right. So he's like, yes, I, I see. We need to take, you know, we need to do this properly and legally and follow all the proper legal channels. But in the interim, we'll put an armed force on the boat so that nothing will change, so that you can be assured that everything's going to sit in a sort of stasis until it gets resolved. This detachment just so happened to consist of 20 black soldiers, a black colonel and a black sergeant, with only a single white officer accompanying them. This should have given an indication to Bacon of how things were going to go. The Americans, seeing that the British were probably going to do what they'd done with the previous ship that had turned up, did try to liberate the Creole before the slaves could disembark. But amazingly, they could find no one to support it in Nassau. So they couldn't get access to any weapons or any manpower. Come on. (laughs) Uh, And they were forced to turn their little boat, on which half a dozen Americans were sat, with muskets around before they even reached the Creole. Because as they were sailing up, the British, who were aware of this, 
just all pointed their guns over the edge of the Creole. Well, technically, are they still at war? The two parties. Uh, we're not. A, we're not at war with America at this point. Has that been settled? Yeah, the Americans are independent. Right. They're gearing up for a civil war now. That's what I meant. The civil war. Uh, the civil war is twenty years after the events of this. But, right. Sorry for my. Um, oh, it's okay. Lack of knowledge. Uh, what on the American Civil War? But wasn't the British supportive of the North? Wasn't that a thing? So, or that's that's no. The, the British were aligned with the North in that the British in principle didn't want slavery, and the North didn't want slavery. So it was well, we we applaud what you're doing, but and sort of politically, we we praised the North and sort of decried the South, but we weren't getting involved again in a military sense. Right. Okay. All the slaves were freed, much to the annoyance of the Americans. Barring the 19 named mutineers, though one of the British captains called Fitzgerald did say to Washington that if they'd just killed all the white people on board and ran the ship aground, they would have been free without all the fuss. She's like, why did you have to make it so complicated, dude? Why did you leave witnesses? Yeah. Kill them all, crash the ship, and we'd have been partying now. Yeah. You tit. They only killed one. They killed one person. Right. Who, from all reports, had it come in. Was a bastard man. Yes, he was He was the kind of man who, he'd made this bed, and he was now lying in it. Yeah. That bed being the bed of the ocean. The seabed. Yeah. When he's slowly filling up <laughs> with water from all the little holes. <laughs> in the end, the 19 mutineers spent five months in the Sao jail, where one... Adam Carney died of natural causes, whilst another, called George Grundy, died from wounds sustained during the mutiny. The remaining 17 men went on trial for piracy. Oh, shit. It was a short trial. All 17, including Madison Washington, were found not guilty. Good. Because, as the British judge stated, the sole object of compelling the Creole was to take them to some port where they might obtain their freedom. And we think that the act of slaves committed with such intent and object cannot amount to piracy. They were all released as free men on April the 16th, 1842. And that is the end of the documented life of Madison Washington. Because at no point did anyone think it was worth taking statements from any of the slaves on the Creole as part of the evidence for the trial. And no attempt to follow up even the ringleader, Madison Washington, appears to have ever been made. So they so just disappeared. Yeah. The story is only known as well as it is because of the impact it had on Anglo-American relations. Right. So, Joe, if you were to... Um, so you, you take this story and turn it into a screenplay. Mm. Um, how would you continue it? Would, would you send Madison back to save Susan? Or is he just sipping him a, a mojito <laughs> no i think the straw hat on i think he returns eventually to canada dejected sort of you know i've won my freedom twice but i i can't get in there and he finds that susan followed him and was actually only days away from catching up to him when he turned around to get her now she's on her way to... No, and she's she's up there and she's she's been told he's gone back down and that he's probably been captured and killed. And she set up the farm in his honour. And it turned out when he left, she was pregnant. And they have a child. And the child comes out of school and sees Papa for the first time. Maybe. Possibly. Yeah. But... What actually happened? Well, we don't know. Um, so he may have stayed in the Bahamas. He may have tried to liberate his wife. Either way, he may hopefully, have slipped and fell. You know, his role in freeing over 130 of his fellow men and women from slavery at least helped to soothe his soul over the decisions he'd made. Yeah. However, although it's the end of Madison Washington's role in the Creole mutiny, it is not the end of the story, as the mutiny sparked a little bit of an international incident. The Creole did eventually arrive slaveless at New Orleans on December 2nd, 1841, because after they'd taken the slaves off, they said, well, you can keep the tobacco and you can fuck off. And the crew, slightly bruised. Yeah, that was rude. Yeah, they, they did. They left. Resolutions were passed in the Senate stating that the freeing of the slaves was, and this is a direct quote from an American senator at the time, an insult to the American flag. And there was talk of retaliatory. love that flag, I don't know. There was talk of retaliatory attacks being authorised. Mm. So they were talking about potentially attacking Canada. 
Why? Just to show that they weren't going to be pushed around by Britain. It's like, you take our stuff, we're going to, we're going to invade Canada. <laughs> yeah. It never amounted to anything. Yeah, yeah. In the event, it took a decade of legal wrangling before the British government finally agreed to pay compensation to the US in 1855 for the freed slaves, amounting to the equivalent of $3.5 million today. Shit. However, the high-profile arguments in Congress brought about by the Creole case and other similar instances, such as the Enterprise and the Hermosa, had solidified the opposing views of the southern and northern states that would eventually lead to the beginning of the American Civil War in 1861, which comprehensively ended the arguments about slavery. I think it was four years later. The Confederacy didn't do a good job of fighting, if we're being honest. No. They, they were terrible. Colonel Grant. They were terrible at war. E. Lee. Yeah. I don't know when Paul They were people. From. Yeah. The source for this one, the source that I used, was the Creole... Mayonnaise. The Creole Mutiny. <laughs> a tale of revolt aboard a slave ship by George and Willet... Willet? No, by George and Will Willet Hendrick. And he's, you very rarely get a, a, a husband-wife team writing history books, so good on them. It's a husband-and-wife team writing a history However, podcast. to be fair, I have never read a history book which asks so many questions and has to rely on so many suppositions. It is just great. It's like, how did he get to Canada? Well, that's written Did in he the book. have help? Yeah. Did he do it alone? Was he captured? Just everything is a rhetorical question yeah. and they don't have an answer. Although this is a reflection of the lack of historical sources regarding the experience of, you know, American slaves in the 1800s, rather than the lack of effort on behalf of the authors who, to <laughs> yeah. be fair to them, they we do a wish great, we knew. They do a great job of providing contextual sort of ideas. So they say, well, we don't know what happened to him, but other people in the same situation that we do have documentation for experience this, this and this. So it's it's likely he had a similar experience. So they try and build it up by saying, well, this is, you know, the this is the tableau into which we're placing Madison. So we can assume he experienced this and we can assume that he felt these things. Yeah, and, you know, they, they did the best at trying to fill in the gaps. And if they hadn't have written it, I wouldn't have done this episode. So my thanks to them. The Hendricks. Good. Good on you. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Well, so good there you on go. that, Joe. That is the story of the Creole Mutiny and Madison Washington. And Susan. Oh, Susan. Or possibly not Susan, because yeah. it's, you know, only a few sources name her. Yeah. And it's like, did it's they just make up a name? Because it's easier than going his wife all the time. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's call her Susan. Maybe they did what you do. They just pulled a name down. Yeah, Susan, it's perfect. Yeah. You'll start doing it. <laughs> no, I always go for, uh, what is it? I always go for Pat, Pat or Pam. I always begin it with a P, normally. Yeah. I wonder why I do that. Anyway, yeah. Is it subconscious longing to be called Pam? I don't know. I'm always cursing Susan. <laughs> Let my go to it. God damn it, Susan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank God your wife's not called Susan. Your future wife. Your nearly wife. My future wife. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric, here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week. <laughs>